Hey everybody, Matt Gurney here for Jen Gerson, the latest episode of the Lions Experimental Podcast. Uh, lots to talk about this week, including obviously the uh, story that you're expecting us to talk about, and we will do so. We'll do it reluctantly, and we hope carefully and with sensitivity, but uh, we do get into it uh, as responsibly as we could. A programming note, um, as we discuss later in the podcast, after we talk about all the uh, other topics to cover this week, I'm heading off on holiday. So this will be the last podcast with me for a couple of weeks. Jen will be taking over the shop uh, for next week, and we'll be uh, publishing all the written content we already have, and we have some great stuff coming out. We don't know yet if Jen will be able to do a podcast. Uh, we will also mention that after the uh, next weekend, one week from now, the line will go on a one-week holiday. I'll be out of the country, and Jen has some family obligations, so she will be off, or the line, I should say, will be off the week of August 14th. I get back the next weekend after that. Jen's family obligations ease, and we'll get back more into the regular swing of things, uh, heading towards being firing on all cylinders by Labor Day. For now, though, enjoy, if that's the word, uh, this latest episode of the Lines Experimental Podcast. Well, this will be a fun podcast where we avoid talking about the thing we don't want to talk about, but have to talk about the thing we don't want to avoid talking about. Like, fuck, I don't even know how to describe it, but this is okay, been so a, it's been a weird week. It's been a very weird week. It's also been a weirdly, uh, how should I say, slow, slow week. Actually, that's not weird. In the middle of August, I would kind of expect it to be pretty yeah. slow. Um, so anyway, this this week was absolutely dominated with the news that Sophie Gregoire and, and Justin Trudeau are separating. And yeah. bluntly, like, neither of us want to say anything about this because both of us are human beings and we respect that's sad it's sad that they're separating it's really sad. i'm sorry they're separating they've got Me three too. kids it's i i, I feel bad 15, about this like 14 and 9 i think like and and also i i just when i heard that they were going to react to this separation by going on a family vacation together with teenagers i literally died inside because i can't think of a worse or most more heartbreaking kind of family vacation than that it's awful so we don't want to say anything about their personal lives, but at the same time, we kind of want to comment on the discourse about not saying anything about their personal lives. And then there are political implications yeah. to what are what are happening here, which which are, I think, completely legitimate to, to talk about. So neither of us are going to engage in ghoulish speculation about personal stuff that we don't frankly care about. Don't know about and don't care. Um, don't know about it. Don't care about it. Not not an issue. Not an issue for us. But there is an interesting discourse around to what extent is what's happening in their private lives Political. a legitimate yeah. conversation for for public figures to discuss. There's an interesting back and forth around that. I don't think I have necessarily a side on this. I mean, you've had people like uh, Joe Warmington and the Sun say, "Look, these are these are public figures on the taxpayer dime. They're yep. they're living on taxpayer funds. It's all fair game." I don't think I have quite that view of it. Um, you know, taxpayer funding is a part of the art and equation of what makes something within the public interest, but it's not the only factor of something that makes something in the public interest. I mean, the fact that a prime minister is divorcing or separating in the middle of his term is news. That's unavoidable. Yep. Um, and I would say that, you know, if news were to come out that there was inappropriate conduct by one or both of them, that would be unavoidably newsworthy. But, you know, if we also are dealing with a pretty standard separation and both of these people go about their business in a dignified manner, then there's just nothing else to say or write about in that regard. It's it's there's no news. 
I, so I think it's tricky. It's tricky. Oh, it is. No, but I, I think you've articulated it well. My my immediate reaction um, when the news broke on Wednesday. Well, okay, without getting into the Purian elements of this, let's just sort of acknowledge something. You and I weren't shocked. Like no, there, no, no. it had been understood that something like this was going to be announced. We didn't know when. We didn't know the exact circumstances. But it wasn't like we did not know that there had been trouble in the marriage. That well, had that, been. I, I I don't even think you needed to be in the loop on anything like that. Their their body language was clearly very tense and had been for for a number of months, if not years. Yeah. So you know this is this is hard. To, this is not hard to pick up on. Yeah. Bluntly. This comes out on Wednesday, and my immediate reaction is when the head of government of your country is going through a, a, a personal family tragedy and that and that's what i consider this to be yeah uh that's news yeah what it is not is an opportunity to start rumor mongering and and peddling uh that kind of stuff so it's very well, hard to it, separate and these it also things. shouldn't be an opportunity to turn it turn this into your particular ideological pet issue yeah i'm not interested in the the right wing sort of like well what does this say about the nature of divorce dialogue i'm not interested in the rumors i'm also not interested in the people on the left who are like well of course all of the alt-right crazies have yeah. separated them so i mean everybody is going to try and take their pound of flesh of this and i don't i don't want to play uh, it was interesting this week. Let me tell you two simultaneous narratives that are unfolding that I have zero time for. I have zero time for the opposition, largely conservative, not exclusively conservative, but largely conservative notion that without Sophie Gregoire, his family man image is ruined and that's going to give us an advantage. Got no interest in that. I also have no interest in the counter narrative I heard from the liberals. He's getting a 5% sympathy bump, but he's like, the Canadian women are going to be wanting to date him. Neither of those of these, things is true. Both of, both of these things are kind of gross. And, and they exist only inside. in the heads of the people determined to believe them. Yeah, fine. Moving on. I mean, so anyway, there's the discourse about this stuff, but then there's also what I think is the legitimate conversation, and that is, how does this affect politics? How does this affect policymaking? And I'm going to be very careful about what I say here, but- I will observe that many of Trudeau's missteps and ethics-related scandals, um, and from here I'm going to point out from the Agacon stuff to the weird India visit to the vacation in, Tr in Tofino on National Reconciliation Day, were all family, family trips. trips. They all involved Sophie. To what extent Sophie is responsible for any of them i can't say i'm not part of their marriage i don't have access to or insight i i can only observe that they seem to have been present in them that there was a there's a family dynamic behind a lot of these scandals and i do think it is legitimate to point out that you know or ask the question of of whether or not trudeau might actually be a little bit better positioned to make good decisions about his travel and ethics positions absent the stress of what is clear in hindsight to have been a failing marriage. And I think that that leads into questions about political longevity for Trudeau, which which I think are actually legitimately paramount at this point. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, with, you don't have to start out getting gossipy about the marriage because it's funny. A lot of people have been trying to project this forward. What happens next for Trudeau? What will be next for Trudeau? Now that this has been confirmed, I'm actually been more interested in looking backward 
and kind mm. of going, okay, well, now that we know that there had been, and again, without getting gossipy about this, that the that the prime minister had been dealing in his personal life with a tragedy. Yeah. Does that help explain any weird political things we've seen, uh, whether it was gaffes or inattention to issues or a distracted PMO? And I don't know. I don't know if we're going to have answers to this, but something that you and I wrote in one of our dispatches over a year ago now, it was in June of last year, was how these guys were listless and drift. And there was something about yeah. them that felt different from just like you and I have seen governments that are in trouble before we've seen governments down in the polls but we actually made an explicit point of calling it a year ago and saying these guys have lost the plot they are they are wandering the forest without a compass and it's hard to come back from that and I don't I want everyone to understand before they pile on for me here I'm not trying to stitch this into the narrative of a marriage or I'm not trying to put any of this on, on Sophie Grubar Trudeau what I'm trying no, to no, say this is not about fault this really isn't about fault it's about understanding whether or not the head of our government has been personally exhausted in a way that was yeah. not publicly obvious yeah I think that's, and, I think that's fair and I I don't know and I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time thinking about it but the reality of it is and all of our our listeners and viewers here know they know my feelings on Justin Trudeau I'm not a fan of the guy I'm not a fan of his party but I'm a human being. And he has had in his eight years in office, which is objectively long to begin with, he has had to deal with the destabilization of our largest ally and trading partner, pandemic, a war, and now an economic crisis. Any human being exhausted by that. Yeah, absolutely. And in the background, what we now know is that at the end of his long workday, he probably did not have a great home atmosphere to go back to. And you don't have to get gossipy or purient about this to ask what kind of a toll all of this takes on any man. So, And then you have this in an environment where a lot of the decision-making has been overly centralized to the prime minister and his immediate staff. So, you know, you haven't had a, had a government that's been capable of um, delegating important files and you know on the whole a year of sort of missed problems and and misjudgments from c18 to the paul bernardo stuff starts to make sense doesn't it 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 kind of jumps out at me as rather than looking at what we learned this week as revelatory or transformative in our understanding of of some of the problems this government may have been happening, I think it just adds another dimension to exhaustion and overburden at the center. And a human and a human dimension. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I have written entire columns about the fact that I think something that is not well understood uh, by the public and even among people who ought to know better is the toll exhaustion takes. Right? Because I'm not I'm not I'm not spinning old wives' tales here, like. Exhaustion is a proven drain on decision-making capability, analytical capability, emotional self-regulation. And our entire government, and I think even our entire society, is exhausted. We've talked about this. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's why why you're seeing that these sort of noticeable upticks in crazy behavior. In just bonkers shit. And Justin Trudeau, whatever you think of the man or whatever you think of his politics, he has probably one of the hardest jobs in the country. Absolutely. And 
now we find out that on top of all the stuff that we knew about, there was something else. So it and also like let's I'm not, again I'm not interested in engaging in rumors, but let's just assume that this is an ordinary marital breakdown, right? There's no there's no particularly interesting sensational aspect to it. It's just an ordinary marital breakdown under extraordinary stress and exhaustion, and that's that. Let's just let's just take that at face value. You know, for world leaders to have to deal with some of the things that they have to deal with without a supportive home life, without a safe place to land that they can talk about their problems and you know have a have a have a productive, healthy kind of environment. That also takes a toll. It's 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 a hard thing to deal with. So my again, this is why I just say this is sad, and I feel I feel bad for the guy because divorces are shitty. And I, personally, I mean, you and I are both married. I presume happily married, and I wouldn't Extremely. know how to cope with my life without my husband in it. I'd be even more of a disaster without him as a steadying influence in my life. And uh, you know, having those primary partners in your in your sphere, having those people, your having that family in your sphere, in your corner, able to help you, help guide you, help help you with your emotional issues, um, it matters a lot. You know, um, especially political spouses play a really important role. Um, yeah. And if this wasn't a support network that he had in his life, I think it explains a lot of bad decision making, frankly. And and and. I, Again, this isn't a blame thing. I'm not trying to blame anybody. I'm just saying that sucks for him. I, I actually feel genuine empathy for him. Uh, my my wife never pays any attention to my work. She thinks what I do is weird. Um, but it is. Yeah, I didn't say she was wrong. Um, so I can say this with 99.9% confidence that she's never going to hear me say this. Our marriage isn't perfect. She annoys me sometimes. She gets on my nerves but I know I'm lucky to have her mm -hmm. and I am stronger with her than I would be without her. And I remember during the pandemic um, when it was four of us uh, in four walls and enormous, unprecedented emotional and, and financial pressure, schools were closed. My wife and I both trying to work from home. The kids were bouncing off the walls. I remember having this moment kind of where I kind of took a deep breath, let it out. And I just thought to myself, and it wasn't like, I wasn't telling myself this. It just, it occurred to me that I was lucky to have her, my wife, I mean, mm. and what I meant by that, I don't mean in any particular romantic way. Like I said, I don't have to say shit here to impress her because he's never going to listen to this. But I was just like, there are people who if I was stuck in these four walls with, I either would have killed myself or them by now. She is a good balance for me. I had yeah. married well for that, for that. I mean, I think I married well for more, more reasons than that, but that particular reason when stuff was bad, when everybody was, this was very early in the pandemic, when everybody was scared, everybody was stressed out. No one really knew yet what was going to happen. It occurred to me that I wasn't alone. And I remember talking uh, a few years ago, with a buddy of mine older older than me by quite a bit and he was married and had kids but he had been talking about how um when he had been around my age he had had a marriage fail a first marriage fail and i, I wasn't trying to pry or be gossipy because like i was kind of surprised that he was bringing it up he'd never told me that before i didn't, didn't know that about him I, he, again he was older he was married he had kids and his kids were closer to my age than i was to his and he kind of just shook his head and he says, people will tell you about 
how awful divorce is. He goes, you hear it. He says, you hear it about how awful it is for the kids. You hear about how awful, how stressful it can be for finances and things like that. And he says, you get over a lot of that stuff. He goes, kids adjusted the new normal. He says, me, I, I found a, a better partner. We, we have a new family together. He says, what I never got over was a sense of failure. Hmm. Not of sadness or heartache or uh, betrayal or anything like that. He says, I felt like I'd failed. Like there was something that meant a lot to me that I put years of effort into trying to do right by. And in the end, it failed. And he says, it made me feel like a failure. And he goes, after all of the other pain that I had been through was gone, I still had that sense of failure. And he said, maybe it humbled me in a way that made my second marriage work. He says, like, maybe it took some of my hard edges off. But he says, I've gotten over every part of that marriage. Like, I haven't spoken to that woman in 15 years, but I still feel the sense of failure. Hmm. And I said to him, what did you do? And he goes, I worked hard. Because we didn't, he says we didn't have kids, so mm -hmm. we didn't have to do the co-parenting thing, and I just became a workaholic for 15 years of my life, and then eventually kind of had to pull myself out of that to have get married again and have a new family. So, in terms of the prime minister's political longevity, I, I hope people don't think this is gossipy. I'm just trying to lay out two scenarios here, two mm -hmm. hypothetical scenarios. One of them, he goes, "Fuck it." I've given yeah. everything. I've given everything job. I can. I've been doing this eight years. I'm tired. I'm dealing with the, with, the, with marriage. I have to get my family back together and I have to reprioritize. That's and I don't want to be. I don't want to do this anymore. Yep. And my kids need me, and I'm done. Yep. That's option one. two. Number two is the only thing that makes me not feel like a failure every day is getting up and going to work and working hard. Yeah. And completely throwing myself into the job. Mm -hmm. And. Look, those are two extremes. Reality is almost always somewhere in the middle. I don't but know. I'm I think that when you're dealing with, to watch. We're, we're, we're not, we're not dealing with ordinary people though. We're dealing with people who by definition are at the outliers of society in terms yep. of their personality and ambition. Right. So, and again, this isn't criticism. It's literally anybody who has the ambition to strive to become prime minister <laughs> is at is at the edge of a particular bell curve right off the bat. Like that's, that's just the personality type you're dealing with. I wouldn't be surprised if it were option two. I wouldn't no, be surprised neither. if you saw someone get real committed to his job and absolutely threw himself into it with absolute gusto. The uh, other thing, so, anyway, I, I, on I, the I, politics side, um, and again, I, I hope I hope the listeners and the viewers are understand that we're trying to thread a needle here, and it ain't easy. We're trying to talk about the thing without gossiping about the thing, and we're I we're trying to talk about the thing without being bad people. Yeah. And then it'll be up to the the audience to decide how good a job we we did with that. One of the things that kind of jumps out at me uh, on the politics of this, and it's again, it's difficult. It's difficult to thread this needle, but we had had a cabinet shuffle last week, mm -hmm. and. What has been announced this week was announced carefully. Yep. That was, so, that, was a, that was a communications plan that was sometime in the making. Yeah. That was not Plus combined with the fact, and again, and again I, don't, I don't bring this stuff up in a, in a gossipy sense, but this is a matter of public record now. The parties have announced they have already signed a separation agreement. 
and the National Post has reported that Miss um, Gregoire Trudeau ha already has secured a new uh, residence in, in Ottawa close to her children. Anyone who knows anything about family law, that takes time. Yep. And within an hour of all of this being announced, uh, Susan Delacourt, um, uh, who, who I have almost bottomless personal affection for, she had the story. She had the column that had, like, she's good, but no one could write it that fast without some advance notice. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I walked away from on Wednesday was an understanding that we had just all witnessed the unveiling of a strategic communications plan. Of course. Of where course. there had been a decision that had been reached, key stakeholders had been consulted, a plan had been arranged, the logistical details of a separation agreement, uh, Ms. Gregoire Trudeau's legal status, because now the part of the separation agreement includes the Conflict of Interest Act, her housing, uh, her, her security, which is not being commented on, but we know that that would be discussed. All of this stuff has been arranged. None of that stuff is quick. So this has now all been announced. The question I have, and I don't say this to be speculative or gossipy, but it's important to, to, to wonder because this matters politically, is how do things go from here? You had said before, Jen, we don't need to speculate about the circumstances of the marriage or the split. And yet you're right, we don't. But you had said, let's assume it's a totally normal marital breakdown. Let me make a further assumption here. It's an amicable one, at least publicly. Yeah. Yep. That is one trajectory this thing could go on. Mm -hmm. There are other trajectories. Yeah, of course. Those trajectories could be one partner or the other. I think this is unlikely, but I raise it as a theoretical possibility. One partner or the other throws wrenches into the gears, becomes vengeful. I don't expect that, but it's possible. What I think is more likely is that other people intervene in the process. Leaks, anonymous sources, people close to the prime minister, people close to Ms. Gregoire Trudeau start talking about things that raise concerns. Maybe or that true might things. be just total bullshit, yeah. It could be total bullshit, yeah. It could yeah. absolutely be total bullshit. Source close to the prime, prime minister's accuse, uh, alleges blah, 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 blah. And of yeah. course, the source close to the prime minister is, you know, two, two, two degrees removed from a political operative in the room, yeah. right? Right. I mean, yeah. who knows? And and I want to, it's very possible that Mr. Trudeau and Ms. Gregoire Trudeau will be absolute consummate menches for lack of a better term about the whole thing they'll be laser focused on the responsibility as parents and as co-parents they'll be incredibly emotionally mature they will either continue or develop a really strong emotional bond as friends but no longer as romantic partners they could behave 100 perfectly and, and the people, people around, around them, them could bring them down yeah and i'm not wishing that on them i'm wishing the opposite for them i wish them and their children nothing but success here well, and then and then you do get into legitimate questions about to what degree should any of us actually be reporting on this. This that's get gets compounded by the fact that we're in a period of disintermediation, where even if the mainstream media is not reporting on this, other It'll people of, of of authority will. Um, and then they'll use it as a like a use it as a tool against the mainstream media to say, "Why aren't you, you talking are trying, about this you're thing trying I read to on that cover blog?" Up on blah 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 blah. You can see how this gets real messy real quick because the yeah. incentives are not all align toward a good positive outcome for everyone involved 
and it's, it's yeah. hard yeah so we could have the uh now separated couple behave completely maturely and responsibly we could have a legacy media observing the highest standards of both professional obligation to report but also personal decorum mm -hmm. and it could all get fucked by some guy with 20,000 followers and a sub stack yeah and so we course, saw the comms the plan we're, already. We're now the assholes with the 20,000 followers. <laughs> we're trying not to be an asshole. I, I did say the assholes, not not the angels with the uh, 20,000 subscribers. <laughs> yeah, look, like we saw the comms plan on Wednesday. Now we see what happens next. Yeah. Anyway, I, I hope that that doesn't happen. I hope Me that too. this is amicable. Would suck. And I'm hoping that, you know, maybe you know Trudeau uses this as an opportunity to sort of refocus his cabinet and his government toward positive ends. Let's just leave it there. Yep. I, you know what? I mean, I'll leave it even more basically than that. Good luck to them both. Good luck to their kids. Yeah. Poor kids. That sucks. All right. You wanted to tell me something about Alberta. And yeah, so you're going to have to walk me through this because I didn't see this story. So this is the Ingram decision I, I want to talk a little bit about. And this is a decision that we've been waiting for for some time. It's, it's a decision that has essentially declared Dina Hinshaw, the former chief medical officer's um, public health orders around COVID sort of retroactively illegal. And of course, this is a big boon for anybody who had outstanding, some pastors who had held church services or whatever, essentially they, they're, they're now off the hook because of their, the orders have been declared illegal. So of course you have a lot of the Smithies and a lot of the people who are um, aligned with anti-COVID, sorry, being opposed to COVID measures, anti-COVID measures, people saying, well, this is a great victory. Except when you start to read the Ingram decision, it starts to get a little bit more messy because the Ingram decision found that there was nothing wrong with the law per se, that Dina Hinshaw was completely legally entitled to enforce whatever public health measures and orders she felt was necessary. What made these orders illegal was the interference of the elected cabinet. So if Dina Hinshaw had just basically been like, fuck you, cabinet, I'm the public health officer and I am issuing these orders regardless of what you say, would have been fine, perfectly legal. The problem here was that either cabinet interfered or she meet, or, or she and the cabinet had an inappropriate kind of, well, but I mean, from our perspective, would have been totally appropriate um, kind of uh, uh, back and forth, whereby cabinet had had some input in some of these decision making processes, and that's what made the process fundamentally illegal. So, if your position here was that these COVID measures were all overreaches and this was bad, the ruling is a victory in the sense that it got your people off, but the ruling also just said, "Look, it was illegal because Dina Hinshaw wasn't tyrannical enough." And if your answer to this ruling is to say, well, now we can change the law so that, you know, we can take away the power of the public health um, officer and and uh, invest it in cabinet so that in any future public health um, um, process, you know, it's actually cabinet and elected officials making these calls at the end of the day, I'd say, okay, as has been pointed out to me, Saskatchewan does this, and I guess Saskatchewan is a great model of governance that Alberta wants to emulate, fine. Um, I can see the argument for having public health orders come out of elected individuals with the guidance of public health 
as opposed to public health directly. I can see that the, the benefit in that. I think that it's not necessarily the winning solution that the anti-COVID measures people would like it to be, because it means that a cabinet is going to be making decisions, not just on the advice of the public health logic, but also in the logic of the politics. And as we saw during COVID, the overwhelming political pressure was not toward easing lockdown restrictions, it was to making them stricter and tougher. There were some people who wanted to ease public health restrictions, but the polling was consistently in favor of tougher and tougher public health restrictions. So if you have these decisions made by elected officials, those people are going to be vulnerable to what the, the mob wants. Mob demanding the mob demanding lock them all in the detention lock them all camps down. and forcibly vaccinate them. Exactly. So there's that. And then there's the other factor that I think people want to consider here, and that's where checks and balances lie. A lot of people um, after COVID looked at the Public Health Act and got really scared by the amount of power that a public health officer actually has. To those of us who are familiar with history, this was not so, not so, actually it's shocking. You know, I, my husband always likes to say that, look, a public health officer can actually burn your house down with you in it. Yeah, they'll be apologetic about it, maybe. They'll be really bad. They'll feel bad. They'll definitely put some signs up apologizing for it, but they'll burn entire fucking neighborhoods down if they have to. It's a really harsh power that the state actually has to use against people in times of emergency. There's a reason why those powers exist. We can debate about whether or not they're appropriate, but they're there. But a public health officer also serves at the pleasure of cabinet. So if you have a public health officer who is acting inappropriately or using their power inappropriately, that person can be fired instantly by cabinet. Power goes away. That's the, the check and balance here. If you move those same public health powers, which may be necessary, to cabinet, the only check on that power is an election, which means, yeah, that cabinet may be burning those houses to the ground, but instead of being able to be fired instantly, your only ability to get them out of power will come during an election. That's not a better check on abuse of power. It's far so, worse. It's far, far, far worse. Because imagine, imagine the next pandemic hits us three days into a new four-year majority mandate. Imagine the next pandemic. And also, I mean, I, I also want these people to point out that the power that you want to invest in the cabinet today is only going to protect you as long as people exactly like you remain in power in that cabinet let's remember that like <laughs> yeah. the or else you're just giving the premier notley in the future all these yeah. powers you're giving premier notley all these powers and yeah. you know that's that's how this is going to work so like i said i'm not necessarily opposed to saying it should be cabinet making these decisions ultimately not the public i think that there's trade-offs and benefits in that scenario but i would really encourage people to look at the ingram decision and ask themselves what the whether or not those trade-offs are, are worth it because if your argument here is that kenny and the cabinet massively overreached and and did did alberta dirty and he deserved to be gone that wasn't hinshaw according to this ruling that was that was that was cabinet so you want to invest those guys with more power and take it away from hinshaw who by all accounts was actually the moderating force in many instances in that in that cabinet so i this is I messy. I don't think this I have messy. any particular comment to make about the Alberta specific angle on this because that's that's your thing. 
But a couple of things I would pluck out of this. Uh, after you mentioned to me this morning you want to talk about this, I glanced at like one quick CBC story about this. The the legality of how the ruling went is interesting, right? Because this is going to be what, as you said, anyone with outstanding charges, uh, their legal situation just improved. But this is also going to be held up as part of the continuing post-COVID culture war of, mm -hmm. aha, these orders were draconian and they were restrictive, blah, blah, blah. It strikes me as way more of when like a judge has to be like, yeah, this guy is guilty as fuck, but the cops didn't get the paperwork right. So I'm throwing yeah. out like, yes. you don't go to prison and that's good. But you're not vindicated. You're still guilty as fuck. You're just benefiting this, from bad paperwork. This strikes me as a lot of um, a, a, a judge trying to thread a needle because we all want COVID to put our to put COVID behind us. Yep. This doesn't strike me as a judge condemning the law. In fact, the judge specifically didn't condemn the law. Yeah, the judge was like, you know, I really don't want to put some pastors in jail, so it's time to just, you know, sweep it under the rug and move on. That's I think that's kind of what a lot of this reads as to me. The other thing that jumps out at me, and you, you touched on this, and when you were when you were setting this all up about how like the public health officers can burn, burn us all down in our homes, is one of the things that came up during the pandemic. And I think probably in in, in media and journalism, I was maybe I wasn't. I'm not going to say I was uniquely well positioned to talk about this, but I was probably unusually well positioned to talk about this because my background in defense and uh, and military affairs. Canada is a very comfortable, coddled country. We don't have a lot of lived experience with the two things where government's sort of emergency reserve powers have the broadest possible scope and application, war and plague. Mm -hmm. And as, as you said a minute ago, Jen, if you know your history, you know where these powers come from. Our... Wars and plagues. <laughs> they come from wars and plagues. So... Wars and plagues that wiped out huge swaths of the population. Our governments in theory, could potentially find themselves dealing with, and touch wood, God forbid, blah, 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 either armed invasion or insurrection on Canadian soil. We all understand that that's unlikely, but the government has means to address those things if they occur, legally speaking. In the Cold War, we had to contend with the possibility that it was possible that we would wake up one morning and all of our major cities would be radioactive craters and our transportation and logistics networks would be destroyed. The government would have had powers on hand to deal with that. The plague powers governments have are probably some of the oldest and strongest powers. And I was thinking recently, and again, I don't mean to sound morose when I say this, although that would not be unheard of on one of our podcasts, there will one day be another pandemic. And maybe it'll be 100 years from now. Maybe we're going to settle into a nice century-long cycle of these things. But for all I know, like the wrong bat is munching on the wrong pe pangolin carcass right now. And in six months, it's going to be everywhere. If the shit is hitting the fan again, and if we, like, something you and I got in trouble for talking about during COVID was how mild COVID was by, this, mm -hmm. by the scale of historic pandemics. Mm-hmm. A nasty, by the way, still factually true, and I don't care if it upsets you to understand it. It killed a lot of people, but it's because we have a big population. Like you, you have to. It actually didn't kill a lot of people by any historic standard. Just so that we're clear, if it had been as bad as the Spanish flu in Canada, we would have lost four to five times as many people. 
Yes. So it, optimistically and not, a, and not, and I mean, I don't want to sound ageist here, but like not people near the end of their lives are immunocompromised. We would have lost four to five as many people who were like healthy and in their twenties and thirties and forties. I, I keep saying this, Jen, and I know I sound like a, a morose fuck when I do, but Im- imagine COVID goes exactly the way it did. Instead, it hits under 20 as hard as it hit over 70. Yeah. And, and what does children. that do to our society? Radically, radically worse. You people like, no, I mean, I, I say this quote, if this big difference between grandma might die five years before her time and holy shit, my kids might die. People would have left the yeah. cities. And what you were talking about a minute yeah. ago about um, the the pressure on cabinet. Imagine being an elected cabinet faced with a plague that is killing the four-year-olds. Like, we got to be real careful about these powers and where we put them because it could be worse next time. And I think one of the things I find fascinating about this if there is to be another pandemic soon, whether it's uh, some COVID variant that goes bonkers on us, or if it's an influenza um, outbreak or something completely new and unheard of, what's going to happen is that the WHO and um, Teresa Tam is going to try and warn us all. Some significant part of the population that took COVID seriously will not take the next one seriously. And they're going to die or they're going to kill their grandparents or their kids. And you said before how important this, it is. This, to... But this this also goes back to being a coddled society because it's not just the individuals who have not had, had to deal with a lot of bad things. It's, the it's also the people and it's the institutions themselves that have, they... have no, they have no perspective. And they also have no experience communicating in them. Yeah. So in a weird way, if the next, if like COVID-25 gets us two years from now our hospitals are a wreck but we now have a cadre of experienced people who've gone through a plague before we would have data management and data sharing systems we would have public health officials who were more dialed in we'd have basically combat veterans and no one would listen to them well this is the other thing that i think you and i have been trying to make this point and people have i think have been trying to studiously avoid understanding this point but we have not only run through the, the the financial cupboard dealing with COVID, we've run through something far more difficult to quantify, and that is institutional credibility. We've run through a lot of institutional credibility, and we've lost it like money. And not among everybody, maybe not even among the majority. Maybe the majority would st- are still here with us. But with, with enough people, we've lost institutional credibility that I don't see any easy or simple way of re-earning that or fixing that or re-diverting that credibility back. And it's, we can just hope that that doesn't lead to bad things for us in the medium term. Oh, no, yeah. And, and, and the odds are it won't because- No, odds are we're going to be fine. Yeah. I would still pick Canada's problems nine times out of 10 over just about any other countries in the world. Yep. The, pro- what, the, the danger I see- is if we get unlucky yeah and it happens again and if it happens again there are people i know in my personal life who masked up and washed their hands and stood six feet behind people in the grocery checkout aisle 
who would not do that again. And if we were up against something nastier than COVID, some of those people would die. Yeah. And the, it seems to me, I don't know if you can actively and deliberately reestablish public trust. I think you just have to let it organically heal a little bit. Mm-hmm. And maybe it kind of bumps up naturally a percent every year. Yeah, so maybe 50 years like from now. 50 years from now, the living memory of COVID will be essentially eradicated. Because Unfortunately, not only will so will the, live, the, the lessons learned. Yeah, well, so, the, so will the lessons learned. And then not only by the number of people who just won't be around anymore, but also, you know, we, we are already going through an active process of memory suppression around COVID. Like that's happening before our eyes. So I, I do think that, and I think maybe that, that suppression is necessary to the rebuilding of, of, of public trust institutions. So I can understand why people are doing it, but, um, and I'm not saying that, sorry, people are doing it. It makes it sound like I'm a conspiracy theorist. Like somebody's actively trying to suppress memory. No, no, I think this is just an organic process that happens naturally to people who go through traumatic experiences. Look, we Um, were talking about happy marriages a few minutes ago. The key to a happy marriage is not having too good a memory. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You, you forget the slights, you forget the irritants, you, you collect collective forgetting is kind of necessary to healthy functioning to yeah. some extent, Yeah, you know, and it's, it's interesting because I mean, I've had this conversation with some of my friends about war and the way that North Americans remember World War II versus the way that Europeans don't remember in World War II. It's a very, oh yeah, there was the thing that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Like North Americans statues because, over there. Yeah. Because they got to see themselves as the heroes of World War II lionize it memorialize it. it it it's it's still an active part of our collective sort of uh mythology in a way that some of the areas in europe that got absolutely devastated like like burned to the ground during world war ii they don't commemorate it in the same way that there, there's not that we were the heroes or the liberators there's a bit of a, a kind of a collective like oh that's just a thing that happened in the past that's a history thing it's not part of the collective myth making of their of their national ideology Oh, think of a country like France, right, where a significant part of the population was collaborating and shipping their Jews off to die. Like, Yeah, this is not something that they really want to remember very well. No, they remember the resistance. Well, exactly. And it's interesting to me that that's, uh, uh, you know, when we have, go through collective traumas that, where, that allow us to see ourselves in a heroic or noble light, we are likely to memorialize and commemorate those traumatic events in in ways that are public and ongoing and sort of feed into our history but when we go through traumas that don't allow us to see ourselves as heroes of our own stories and i think covid was an example of this we collectively forget them this is why there's very little been written about the spanish flu for example there was a there was a real collective forgetting of the spanish flu i'm not saying forgetting in the sense that all record of it was wiped out i was saying collectively everybody just wanted to put it behind them and move on to the next thing right that's what's happening with COVID because, because we were so disenfranchised from action, because we were so unable to serve as heroic figures in our own lives, because our answer to the pandemic was to sit down, shut up and stay home and watch Netflix. These are not periods of our lives that we want to commemorate, commemorate or memorialize in any way. And I think that that's leading to this kind of collective forgetting. It's not that somebody is out there trying to suppress it. It's that, we all just want to move the fuck on because this wasn't a fun time and nobody looks back on their 
their experience there and says, I'm so proud of myself. My, you uh, know what I mean? My COVID memorial would be like my smartphone, my TV remote, and a styrofoam box my Uber Eats order arrived in. And I'm not even sure that I think a lot of the healthcare professionals who did who did act heroically, but they make up such a, such a minority of the population. I mean, this and the is, dying was to, all out of sight. The dying was all out of sight. And this is also something that I like. I pointed out at the beginning of the pandemic. It's like, in order to maintain a, a degree of public trust and social cohesion, you actually needed to get mobilized your population to serve. Skin in, in the game. In, you need, you need, in other words, you needed to get, you know, housewives and suburban moms in on, volunteering at local hospitals you needed to you needed to have to mobilize mass mask making drives like you needed to get even if the stuff was kind of useless you still needed to mobilize people in a way that to get them engaged in helping their own social health but for two reasons first of all it gives the individual a narrative that they can take remember and it also would have counteracted the isolation of the pandemic which exactly is still playing out still, now. And it was already happening. Out. Like we already had bowling alone and, and all that stuff before. Yeah. COVID and then we literally told yeah. people not to leave their homes. Yeah, COVID just catalyzed all of these existing trends. But the fact that we didn't do that, and I mean, I'm not saying everybody, did, some people did step up, but the fact that we didn't step up collectively into some kind of action, uh, I think really damaged us and left us very broken. And I think that the only way to move on from that is to try and collectively forget it anyway that's a whole other side ramble that has nothing to do with the Ingram decision i'm sorry i ramble no on. i think it, honestly i think it does because these are these are lessons learned and if it happens again five years ten years a hundred years from now they're gonna have to remember how we handled it and when it was just starting i tried to learn as much as i could about 1998 1918 and there wasn't much, at no. least not in English. Like maybe in other languages, I would have done better. No. It, there is stuff, but it was shockingly sparse. And yeah. for what a major event it was, it was. And I think that's because pandemics, it's very hard to mobilize action in pandemics for very obvious reasons. There, there are logistical challenges to that. Yeah. And I, I think, I don't know. I don't know if we're, we've learned anything. Like that's honestly where I I kind of think we. But that's are. the problem. That's the that's the problem. Collective forgetting might be necessary to rebuilding of social trust and so social co- cohesion. But then but it happens it d- again. But then you you don't learn the lessons. You, yeah. you you don't internalize the lessons. So anyway, that's that's a side conversation. Last thing you wanted to talk about was Greenbelt update. I do. Yeah, just and it really is just an update. And I I guess this is a point now where we should also mention our own uh, update here at the line, which is to say that I am going on holiday. Uh, I'll be out of touch for a couple of weeks. So fuck out of here. I'm going to toss the keys uh, to Jen. So Uh, the next week is just going to be me staring and staring into the camera going like this, talking all about the things that happened. It's going to be a great podcast next week. Uh, Look, if, if, if you want to put a podcast together, they're easy enough to do. If you, don't that's fine um, i'll get someone to come on with me so that i'm just not doing a full-on curtsy and ramble or the horror you know how to edit them i'll figure it out okay or i could well, go full russell brand it'd be great in fact you know what our, our, our youtube metrics would probably spike without your yeah, reasonable and reassuring emotional ballast so uh the plan on our end is uh we have already gotten a lot of um 
uh, writ written content. So you'll still be reading articles next week. Uh, Jen, you plan to take the week after that off, though. Yeah, I, I think that uh, with you on vacation, I'll go on vacation. The second take week? some time. Second okay, week, so yeah. August 14th, the line will be on holiday. Uh, I will be back that weekend, so the weekend after that. So we'll we'll get back to to work on a normal schedule around August twenty first. The reason I I kind of tied this to the Greenbelt announcement is because it's going to come while I'm on holiday. So oh. don't expect any major updates from me. Um, but the Auditor General in Ontario has been looking into uh, the sale of property of the Greenbelt. So let me. It's, it's kind of a it's kind of a boring, wonky topic, but it's an interesting political topic. So let me, I think a lot of the listeners will know this. The Ontario government, uh, the former Liberal government in Ontario, years ago declared a huge swath of land around Toronto to be protected greenbelt land. It had kind of multiple purposes. Preservation of prime agricultural land for agricultural purposes. Preservation of watersheds to, to guard Toronto's water supply. And to constrain urban sprawl to for environmental reasons to say no it's instead of just constantly building ever further out and have more pollution more congestion all that stuff will constrain urban sprawl there have been regular tweaks to the green belts boundaries since then and this has been liberal and conservative governments doing this sometimes strict adherence to it would result in planning absurdities so sometimes it's like well we have a road running right through here and we want to put the firehouse and the library on this side of it, but we can't. So you remove five acres from the Greenbelt and you add five more somewhere else. So these tweaks are normal. What happened recently, about a year ago, I guess, um, and I, I'm going to put this in very careful language for all you lawyers listening here. The Ford government had pledged not to touch the Greenbelt. It had been an ironclad political pledge. They had an election. They were reelected with a majority. They declared that the housing crisis required them to open up uh, not, all, not all of it, but like a, a, a sizable chunk of it to development. They did say that they would add more in other places. But these were not just little corrective tweaks anymore. Like this was a, a significant revision to the, how the green belt was, was going to be conceived. Okay. Controversial on its own merits. But this is where we go from wonky to interesting. It has been alleged, happy lawyers, it has been alleged that shortly before the government announced its plans to alter the Greenbelt boundaries, there were a series of land purchases by people connected to the Ford government that allowed people to buy at a discount because the land was not cleared for development, land that shortly thereafter became cleared for development. So you buy undevelopable Bus. farmland for pennies, a regulatory tweak happens, and all of a sudden you can build a subdivision on it. Sus. So these are the allegations... Yeah. Would the previous landowners have license to sue these developers? I don't know. And for I lost for lost value of the land. I hadn't even thought about that angle, but possibly. So what needs to happen, what, what we need first is a finding of fact. The Auditor General of Ontario has been looking into this. The Conservatives have been complaining bitterly about this, saying it's beyond her mandate. The Integrity Commissioner has already looked at it in 
Ontario and um, did not find any obvious problems with the with the narrow slice that he looked at, um, which I wrote a column at the time, which said, if this is acceptable within the rules, our rules are stupid. And I'm okay with the integrity commissioner saying the rules were cleared, but we need better rules. But the auditor general has the ambit, well, or at least she thinks she does, although the government disagrees, to take a broader look at this. I don't want to get into speculation, but I will say that I was reading in the coverage this week that the government has now received a draft of the report, which will be published next week while I'm gone, and that at around the same time, a former government official who had taken a job in the property development industry was suddenly no longer in that job. Hmm. So... We will see what is found next week. And I want to be very clear about this. I don't like Doug Ford. <laughs> i not a fan of the guy. But it's very possible he did nothing wrong here. And what I mean by that is it is possible that someone in one of the planning offices mm -hmm. got out his smartphone, took a picture of a map that was tacked up on a wall. Mm-hmm. And passed it on to a brother-in-law who happened to be working for a development company. There are ways that this can be bad that don't link right back to the premier. Mm -hmm. There's an awful lot of ways where it links right back to the premier. Mm -hmm. But so, anyway, I think, to be honest, I think that the scenario you just laid out about somebody in the planning office doing something untoward, that strikes me as a much more likely outcome than... Doug Ford giving his developer buddy a call. You know, I don't know. That just sort of seems like it's more realistic. It's more in line with the sort of thing that happens. What, what needs to happen before we can even start talking about that is a finding of fact from, for instance, the Auditor General, who can say in black and white... This is what happened. ...that the purchase of protected property which was then immediately opened for development therefore becoming massively more valuable occurred and cannot be explained now i think we, we're all looking at this here and we know what it looks like but if the auditor general comes out with a finding that there was impropriety even if she cannot point to exactly who was responsible for it that could open things up further so this is not a satisfying podcast segment, I know, because I don't have any answers to give people. But it's more this, like a, well, we're going to pin this just to draw your attention to it. I've had this pinned for a while. Because sometimes in politics, you know, Doug Ford had 10,000 or more. I, I haven't looked at the numbers for a while, but like thousands and thousands of people in Ontario died during COVID. We had the convoy crisis where his government completely beclowned themselves. We have a healthcare system that is in a state of advanced collapse. And he won a majority. Mm -hmm. But this is the kind of story that alienates people. And I remember way back in 2005, knowing that Paul Martin and the liberals were screwed when an Italian barber I knew who had been a lifelong liberal said the sons of bitches are stealing our money it was about the sponsorship scandal yeah, this is the I kind of thing that turns partisans against governments 
I disagree. And maybe this is my Alberta talking. I think this is an example of the low-level corruption that Canadians more or less tolerate. Ontario has a more dynamic political culture than Ottawa. We change our governments more often than you do. Yes, if you have something to change them into that you like better. But I mean, I look at sort of like, what should we call it? All the scandals that hit the McGinty and Wynn governments with the power plants and the orange and all that kind of shit. Didn't really work. Didn't really take. That wasn't the thing. Took a while. I mean, the thing to remember. You know, like, like, I just, I just, I, I'm just, again, coming from the Alberta example where we had basically one party rule for an exceptional amount of time. People have a high tolerance for corruption and grab, as yeah. long as they're comfortable. Yep. As long as as long as they kind of feel like maybe the crowd, eh, it's not so bad if a couple in boy, insiders get the get the. I'm not I'm not condoning this. I have issues with corruption. I think it's bad. But they're just like, eh, a couple of developers got rich on somebody's farmland. Like unless you're the farmer, the person who got stolen from there is the yeah. farmers who sold their land at discount, and we'll probably have some grounds to sue the developers who bought it, right? Like that is the only person who who got hurt in this corruption here. I mean, I get why partisans are all over this. I'm not, or and I get why people who don't like Doug Ford are all over this. They want to see a smoking gun here. I don't think most ordinary people care about this. I think there's truth big, to that. It's big landowners fucking over another big developer. There's no, big no, no. developers yeah. fucking over a big a big landowner. Believe me, I'm I'm not who's, writing Ford's political obituary yet. Who's who's sympathetic here? No, no, no. I get it, and I'm not going to write his obituary over this. Ford is Teflon coated to an extent that baffles me. Oh yeah. But this is the sort of thing that can do lasting reputation, reputational damage because Ford is a retail politician who talks about Timmy's breakfast sandwiches. If they can really peg him if it were, if with it an were enduring... No, if it were taxpayer money, I would agree. If it were taxpayer... If he personally were getting enriched off of taxpayer money or if his party were getting enriched off taxpayer money, I would agree. I think this is an example of stock standard low-level corruption that is rampant across the country particularly around development and property and i think that nobody here is a cuts a particularly sympathetic figure well, the person fair. who got the person who got fucked in this was the farmer who sold his he landed a loss it, it would not be Am beyond I, the ability of an I, opposition party to not probably to kill ford with this but to knock three percent off of him you know, i don't know these don't things add people, up i don't i don't think people are going to care about that I think people don't, I mean, I think people say they care about corruption in the abstract and people mm. like you and me care about corruption in the abstract because we understand that that has a corrosive effect on trust in the system. But I don't think ordinary people give a fuck. I really don't. They do sometimes. It takes a lot, but they do sometimes. It takes the right kind of corruption. Yeah, no, maybe. But also sometimes maybe it's a tipping point where they just need more of it. I don't think people care about the green belt. And I think the NDP and the I think, liberals. I think, I think people care about the green belt. I think people care about preserving the green belt. In the abstract. In the abstract. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think what, what could damage Ford here would be your buddies were getting tip-offs and getting rich while I can't afford a home. Like, I think that could be what dings them. Your, your rich okay. land developer buddies getting a nudge-nudge, wink-wink from you. I but think there could be able, damage then there. He's able to counter that. And I'm, sorry, I'm not defending Doug Ford here. I'm talking no, about political it. hypotheticals here. He's able to counter that by saying, look, by opening up the green belt, I'm trying to make more homes affordable for you. How Ford would counter that would be by showing up at a barbecue. No, and, and like I mean, like I, I opened the green belt so that we could get more more young families' homes. 
and I didn't know that the developer was engaged in this, and I feel really bad for the farmer who got fucked. If there's someone he can throw under the bus, there. Yeah. But no, Ford doesn't even have to play that kind of politics. He shows up at a barbecue in a Leafs jersey, and his polls go up six percent. Like he's he just has to shut up and be like a little mascot. He's like he's like he's like not really a premier. He's like a fuzzy mascot. You know what? In, uh, in my TVO column that I wrote yesterday, uh, I said that Ford is an incredible retail politician, but he's not a leader. When he's when he's required to make tough choices, he panics and he disappears. Yes. When he can show up at a lectern and play act, he wins majorities. Yep. So it would be depend a little bit on how he responds to this. The other thing I would just say about Ontario in the McGinty and Wynn years Ontario's history would be very different if the Conservatives had won the 2014 election, which they probably should have. Like the, I would actually be, it would be, it would be interesting to put together a panel of Ontario politics wonks. Maybe we should pin this and actually do this. Let's get like get 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 uh, Benzie at the Star, get Rogwanski from the Globe, uh, get Selly from the Post. And kind of do a retrospective 10-year look back at the 2014 election, which... Maybe, maybe that's what our event should be in October. Hmm, that's probably... Uh, I'd, I'd rather something sexier for our first event, but... Fair enough. Um, you think Redwanski, Benzies, and Sully aren't sexy as hell? They are, but maybe a little too much for that crowd. Um <laughs> It's not only interesting to look back on what the hell happened in that election, but also to wonder what Ontario politics would be like if the Conservatives had won that one. Because something that we talking about the Prime Minister earlier, the Liberals probably would be better off in Ontario today if they'd lost in 2014. Mm -hmm. And I have a growing suspicion that the federal Liberals would have been better off in the long run if they'd lost in 2021. Well, that we would all have been better off because then we would have had Prime Minister O'Toole. Like he would have been boring. That would have been great. Anyway, look, we've already gone on too long. It was fun though, wasn't it? It was fun. Well, I will. Uh, I I will have my phone on me uh, overseas, so we, we can be in touch. Um, if if the Prime Minister uh, resigns while you're on vacation, I'm going to die. You you know my theory. Every time I leave the country, shit happens. Every time you leave the country, shit happens. But anyway, let's put a pin on it there. Let's put this, get this dispatch out. We'll try and write something for today. You put, you're leaving tomorrow, right? Sunday, but I'll, I'll be prepping. Oh, okay. okay, so we'll probably publish the dispatch tomorrow then. I, I wouldn't be shocked. At, well, you know what? Let's talk about that. I might need until Sunday sitting at the airport to write okay. my last bit, but let's figure that out. Uh, but anyways, have a great couple of weeks. Good luck running the shop next week. And barring any airline disasters, I'll see you in two weeks. All right. Knock on wood. Wait, for what? Airline disasters. For or against? No, not against. I don't want you okay. to die in an airplane. Just, God. Just clarifying. Bye. Bye. Well, all right, guys, that's it for me. I hope you have a wonderful couple of weeks. Jen Gerson will be running the line next week, so you'll have lots of great stuff to look forward to, at least in terms of written articles. We'll see if uh, she's able to put together a podcast uh, with her uh, family who will be visiting. I'm not honestly sure. I don't want her uh, to feel committed to that. But in any case, we'll be back in a couple weeks at full strength. Looking forward to it. Enjoy uh, the next week, the week after that. And I and Jen will catch you guys soon. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Lines Experimental Podcast.